No, you did perfect. Right, right on schedule there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In times like these. Wow. I haven't sang that for a little while, but you need a Savior, you need a Bible, you need a sure word, don't you? And uh, it's funny because Angus just came in and mentioned, he was talking this morning, he said, the church is done, he said, it's over. <laughs> but it is. If you look at the culture around us, whether it's in America, whether it's in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, the Church, as we call it, Christendom, Christianity as a whole, has left God's word. And there is such a mixture of the world and the church that, you know, it just gets downright confusing with a lot of folks. And it's what requires a lot of knowledge of God's word so you can stay on the true path, the right path, and it becomes very muddled. And I was just talking last week, I think it was, or maybe a week before now, about with a fellow about the number of people, especially in a, the younger generation, the 20, 30, even early 40s now, group of people that are leaving the church, meaning that they're leaving the institutional church. And I think I've mentioned this before. And it's not because they're just anti-God. It's just because they don't find God there. They don't find, you know, or they see the contradictions between what they read in the Bible and what's being practiced in their church. And so they just leave. And many have gone into, you know, Nothing. They just, they're just individuals. They believe in God. They worship the Lord. They read his word. Just try to do it on their own. Or the growing house church movement, which a lot are just in order to escape. And you try doing that sometime. Just go to Google, type in house church movement, and you'll see what's going on. I mean, you'll, you better reserve yourself an hour or two to read because there's a lot there. But that, that's what's happening in today's church. And, you know, when you read or sing a song like that in times like these, I mean, that was written in 1944, <laughs> according to that. Copyright. But it couldn't be more appropriate for today. And it's very, speaks to my heart. Speaks to my heart. I should have mentioned, and really this isn't a further prayer request, it's more of an update or just a continued reminder of Jim Brooks and the issues he's going through. This, his main problem, you know, is this scar tissue growing around his throat and cutting off his air and having such great difficulty breathing. And from my understanding, there's really nothing they can do except eventually he'll have to have a trait put in and it would be a you know a permanent thing. And I did, Ellen did mention something else about it, and it's escaped me right now. But that's, that's the bottom line issue that he's facing. And, of course, then the other is the fact that he can't really work 
if he can't, he can't really find a job, anybody that would employ him in his present condition, so they're still struggling financially, and I know that's going to be an ever-present need. Tracy t Daniels told me the other day his church just took them on like a, you know, as a monthly benevolent thing, just like he's supporting a missionary. And so uh, we want to always keep them ever before us. I talked to Jackie Powell last week, and she was extremely grateful for the the gift, uh, love gift that we gave her. And I didn't, you know, you don't really pay a lot of attention. We have over well over 500 missionaries. We have about, uh, what was the official count? Around 1,021 missionaries altogether. That's husbands and wives. So that's about 500 and something units. And... So I don't look them all up every, all the time, but she called and we got to talking about that and taxes and what have you because that's what I do a lot of with missionaries. And I looked at her support and I couldn't believe how she, I just said, how are you making it, Jackie? Her support was so low and it was, you were mentioning some you know, missionaries at great sacrifice and immediately Jim Brooks came to mind, who's not really a missionary, but... Uh, this difficulties they're going through and, and Jackie I mean she mows yards every now and then or just runs a little errand or somebody has something to do just to make a few extra dollars to get by I said Jackie you need to get out and raise some more support you just you can't continue on like that so she was very grateful for what we extended to her and she very careful she has a separate account um, that she calls light for Israel and love offerings or designated gifts that go strictly towards that ministry. You know, it goes into that account and anything that she gets for, you know, support from churches, it goes into her personal account. So she's very careful about that and uses what the Lord gives her. And, you know, you really appreciate conscientiousness like that and diligence to take care of the Lord's money and to do with it what God's people intended for it to have, you know, to be done with. So anyway, then we got a letter from Alan Brooks. You remember Alan and what he's doing, uh, as far as the, um, Bibles that are being shipped to the Solomon islands. You know, if you remember, but, uh, Robert Meyer, who's been here a couple of occasions, his son, Tim is a missionary in Australia. And he made somehow he had some contact with somebody from the Solomon islands, went there, met with some people who were wanting a church, found out the really the dreadful conditions there, the lack of, of scriptures. Even though the Bible's been translated into their language, they just really didn't have any. And so he, they began this project to raise this money, which we contributed to, to print these Bibles. They ran into an issue. The Christian fella ministry that was printing the Bibles, his binder broke down. And they were on a tight schedule to get them over there because they had these groups all lined up, you know, to come over on these certain dates to do the Bible distribution. So they had to ship them up to another binder, get them done, get them on the ship. They're on their way right now. Of course, all that cost extra money that they weren't planning on, but they're on their way. Uh, Robert and Alan have left for Fiji. They're having a field conference there with their missionaries. They'll be back and then turn around almost a week later and head back out then to, to the Solomons to begin this distribution. So a lot of prayer for them in the coming few weeks, you know, concerning what they're going to be doing. Okay. I guess that's all.
I w maybe I would mention, and I think he mentioned this here, about a, almost a year ago, or right at a year ago, his daughter fell ill. She's 26, I think, still single, but had seizures and so what ha have you, and it caused some, basically some permanent brain damage. And she's on medication for it and doing pretty well. She came into Camp BIMI or Camp BIMI as we call it the other uh, week or so ago and she comes and she goes to church and he said he'll one morning and it wipes her out and she's in bed the rest of the day but it's just been a long slow recovery process for her and and his wife fell a few weeks ago and broke her ankle she's on a walker you know and trying to get around so he's got a lot on his plate his mother's in a nursery home up here in Cleveland he's trying to take care of her and now he is here. He is off, gone on this this trip. So I know he covets our prayers and would really appreciate that. Okay, I want us to turn to Second Samuel for a few moments, anyway. Second Samuel. I'm glad you're here to worship with us this morning. Appreciate your presence and. What a joy it is to spend time together, both here in fellowship as well as in the Lord's Word. You remember in, in 2 Samuel 15, David, of course, is, he's, you know, taking his throne, ruling over the kingdom in Israel. But he's got some issues that are somewhat a direct result of his sin and with Bathsheba and murdering of her husband and so on and having some family issues. And one of those crops up there in chapter 15 with his son Absalom. And, of course, Absalom, you remember, wants to take the throne from David. And so there was quite an interesting affair there between he and his you know, dad and son. And basically, I think, if we really saw through what his intent was, he would have killed his dad in order to get the throne. And, of course, David, being in fear, left. And so if you look at verse 13 of chapter 15, 2 Samuel, it says there that there came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. Now, it's one thing for a person to rouse up a group of people who might be willing to follow after them. You know, he gets them all stirred up uh, and so on. But it's another thing altogether when their heart is with that person. You think of, I was think, think of uh, somebody like Newt Gingrich here. You know, he had a little team around him. He was going to politic for being president. And some of the men working with him didn't really much care for his trip overseas and thought he wasn't really committed to winning the presidency so they just left and abandoned him and went to another candidate some of them did went to another candidate their heart wasn't really with newt gingrich in this case these men had a heart that was going after absalom so let you know that in david's kingdom you know it wasn't all hunky-dory there in his kingdom there were some who were highly favored and favorable of King David. But there were quite a few that weren't. And so we find then that there's a little rebellion going on here. 
And so David, it says in verse 14, said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. So David had his men too that were loyal to him, and their heart was after David. And so it tells us in verse 16, The king went forth and all his household after him, and the king left ten women which were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. Well, if you'll notice verse 17 and 18, it tells us where he went. And all his servants passed on beside him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men which came after him from Gath passed on before the king. Now, he tells us in verse 19, the king, then said the king to uh, Etai, the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and also an exile, that is a foreigner. And you're, you're an exile. Now, he was from Gath. Gath, you remember, was over in the part of Philistia. So he was not a Jew. And for whatever reason, we don't know, he was an exile. And I think it's verse uh, 20 yeah, in the first part there. It says, whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? In other words, why are you going to trouble yourself? You're going to follow me. You just... And the word yesterday in some context doesn't necessarily mean literally he just got there the day before, but very, very recently. And it could have been the day before. But he hadn't been there long. And David's just telling him, you know, why are you going to bother yourself about this? I don't want to be a trouble to you. Why don't you remain here? Well, he said, um, seeing I go whither I may, return thou and take back thy brethren, mercy and truth be with thee. But in verse 21, Etay answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. And so David said to him, Go, go and pass over then. And uh, so he passed over and all his men and all the little ones that were with him. That is, they passed over the brook Kidron as they were leaving the, the city. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now, we want to focus on that for a moment. He's passing toward the way of the wilderness. He passed over the brook Kidron. Now, that is it going west. He's going towards the Jordan River. And as, so as you would leave Jerusalem, and of course it was on a, a hill, or in the Bible calls it a mountain, and well, we, we call Lookout Mountain a mountain, and it was about the same height, around 3,200, 3,300 feet in elevation. So when they left, down they went. 
They went through the Valley Kidron, but eventually they made their way. The wilderness area was down off the mountain over towards the Jordan. So it was a desolate and far more remote area. And, of course, all those loyal to David went with him, Zadok the priest and and, uh, others of them that, that went along. And... Of course, David's on the run. Verse 28, he says, See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. That is, that it's okay to come back. And that's what he was wanting Zadok the priest to do. Well, he says... um, He's in the plain of the wilderness. That is, he's in that low-lying area along the river where the streams, you know, when the run, rains came and the runoff, it would, they would all run towards the river. So there was these little, you know, little creeks or gullies or wadis or fjords or whatever you want to call them, you know, all in the drainage area there. It gave a convenient place for David to hide. It also made it possible for him to have a convenient way of escape. And he he was smart. You know, he went towards the river because if Absalom came after him, then he would, you know, he could get across the river and, and escape. And it's described for us then several times further. If you look over at chapter 16, And I forget where it was now. I didn't mark it. It tells us there again, somewhere in here, about it being the wilderness. And two or three times in here, actually. Chapter 17, uh, he mentions it again. I wish I should have wrote those down. I didn't do it. But if you, if you would read through those couple chapters, you would see that he mentions repeatedly the fact that he was in the wilderness. Now, with that thought in mind and with the condition in which he was, I want us to turn over to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. And if you notice the superscription above the psalm, there it tells us it's a psalm of David. When he was in the wilderness... Of Judah. Now, there's nothing that specifically ties this psalm back to this experience with Absalom. There were other wilderness experiences in the general land of Judah. There was uh, the time that he was in the wilderness of Ziph. There was another time he was in a place, um, oh, I don't remember the name of the place exactly, but it was over near Philistia. In the forest of Hereth. And then there was another time, the remember, he was down at the, uh, near En Gedi, near the Dead Sea, hiding out in the cliffs and the, the little rocks and the caves that were all over through that area. But most, I would say, uh, that I know of at least, commentators would tie this to this experience. And this is a definite experience in the wilderness of Judah just not too awful far from Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. And this is a beautiful psalm. 
I've always appreciated it. I heard a, a song several years ago that a guy wrote on this, and I'd love to get it back because it was really a beautiful, well-written uh, song on this psalm. So in, verse, in Psalm 63 here, notice what he says. And I want us to, so I want us to read through this psalm, 11, 11 verses here, and understanding this condition that David is in with these, with these, these people that had risen up in rebellion against him under his son, Absalom. He says, O God, thou art my God. Now, first thing we'll notice there is, and you wouldn't in English, but it's two different words for God. The first one is Elohim, that common word that is used to express the Lord, God. But when he says, thou art my God, it's the word El. Like in the word Bethel or Bethel, house of God. And this is God, the mighty one. God, the strong one, the powerful one. And, of course, understanding where David is, he's making an appeal to one who is stronger than the one that's trying to take his life. Early, he says, will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Now, it seems to me that David's making some kind of a comparison here between the physical place where he was located and his spiritual condition, not that he was in a bad way, but the fact that he was away from the place where the sanctuary was. You remember there was no temple at this time, but a tabernacle, the place where the ark was, the place where David went to meet with the Lord. And he was apart from that. And he felt that in his soul. He felt a distance between where he was and his relationship to the Lord. And so he's making this appeal about his soul. When he says, early will I seek thee, it carries that idea of, of diligently will I seek thee. And if you were to look that word up, you would find that in several instances, the word diligent is used uh, as an adjective to describe this. I will seek thee diligently early in the day. Sometimes they apply it even to the dawn. And in some contexts, you can see that's exactly what it means. He's talking about early in the day. But that's not necessarily what David is saying here. He's saying, I'm seeking after you with diligence. I'm pursuing after you. And my soul is thirsting after you just like I am in this thirsty land. My body's thirsting. I'm craving a good drink. But my soul is also craving after you, God. Why? Well, we might explain the obvious here where he is why to see the power and the glory to see thy power and thy glory so as i have seen thee in the sanctuary of course the sanctuary again is not the temple there 
And it literally there, it means the holy place. In the holy place. You remember when David's son with Bathsheba died, you know, he fasted the whole time. Once word was brought to him that his son had died, what did he do? Do you remember he got up and basically says he took a bath, cleaned himself up, combed his hair, put a little cologne on, made himself smell good, and he went down to the sanctuary. He went down to the tabernacle, to that holy place where he knew God dwelt because he wanted to meet with the Lord. And that's what he's talking about here. His soul craves lusts after, languishes after such an experience. And I think what he's trying to tell us here is that he's doing this very thing in the wilderness. He's not telling us, I can't do it until I get back to where the sanctuary is. He's telling us that as I had that experience back there where the sanctuary was and how I met with you and how I saw there in the sanctuary your power and your glory, so I'm seeking after you now. And of course, if you read on down there uh, in verse 6, he says, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. It wasn't just early in the day. (laughs) It was in the night watches. He was seeking after the Lord, meditating his thoughts when he was fleeing for his life, turned to the Lord. And what did he see when he worshiped the Lord in the sanctuary? Hit thy power and thy glory. You know, for us, when we worship the Lord, And we worship him based on a knowledge of his word, not according to feeling, not according to, oh, it makes me feel so good. But when I worship the Lord according to my understanding of his word, then we ought to be able to see with that eye, that spiritual eye. The one that we studied about so long, several, well, I guess last year now. The ability to see things that are beyond you know, the immediate. Things beyond what's right in front of us. I want us to look then with that thought in mind over to Hebrews chapter 6. And in Hebrews chapter 6, we see the same kind of thought that the writer of this book is urging these Hebrew Christians to do. They had committed themselves to Christ, believing that he was their Messiah. Now they were wanting to turn back to their Judaism and their Judaistic practices. And he's instead urging them to not come back where you were, but rather to move on from where you were. Move on to maturity at the end there of chapter 5. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on 
unto perfection, or let us move on to maturity. Stop being a baby Christian, in essence, what he was saying. Get off those basic things and move on. Well, what are they going to move on to? Well, he tells them in verse 3 that we're going to leave those things if God permit. For it is impossible, he says in verse 4, for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come or the age to come, that if they should fall away, to renew them again to repentance. And what I want us to see that the writer here is imploring us to do if we're in a place where we're stuck like these were is to get on to maturity and getting on to Christian maturity we will see and taste those powers of the age to come and we will understand his coming glory we will know of what he speaks of I think David you know if we were to take all that we could take of David's experience, and especially if we were to turn back from, remember we were in 2 Samuel 15, if we went back to 2 Samuel 7, you remember that the Lord had already told him that he was going to give him a house that it would endure forever for the age. David saw ahead. He understood those things. He knew what was to come in the future. He understood that God had a promise to fulfill through him. And this branch, this Messiah, would come through his descendants. And so he, when he went to worship God at the sanctuary, when he saw God's power and glory... That's the kind of thing that he's speaking of here. He understood what the Lord was doing. Now he goes on in verse 3 and to tell, say, Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. I can hardly read those without stopping and going to that song. And I want to sing it. Because thy loving kindness, it's that word, a very fundamental Hebrew word, hesed, or they would say it with that, you know, hesed. I can't do it very well, so I don't try to do it. I just say hesed. But it's translated pity. It's translated in other places as mercy or merciful kindness. It has to do with that. Uh, some places it's translated steadfast love and so it has to do with that that attitude of God towards those who are seeking him that he is loyal steadfast merciful kind towards those who have a heart for him the kind of heart that would David was trying to express here in this psalm in a very dire situation so, in other words, it wasn't just when times were good and David was in Jerusalem and he occupied the throne there that he was seeking after the Lord and enjoying these things. But David says, 
I'm out here away from the sanctuary. The enemy is trying to take my life and seek, you know, seek to kill me. But Lord, my heart is still towards you and I still meditate upon thee in the night watches. And I think about these things. And I think that's good for us to, to think about is that wherever we are, whatever condition or situation we find ourselves in, it's not, oh, woe is me. And if there was any time that David could have said that, it would have been in a case like this. But to meditate upon what the Lord has in store for those who remain steadfast and loyal towards him. Consequently, he says in verse 4 that he would, well, he says in verse 3, my lips shall praise thee. My lips shall praise thee. Because he knew what the Lord had for him. He knew what the future held. And, you know, we're, we're told, and I could go back to Hebrews 13. You remember there, he says that we are to give the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, and, and you don't need to turn there because I'm, I'm going to look and see. I forgot. I, I wasn't planning on this, so I'm looking for a reference here. Um, Hosea chapter 14. Turn over Hosea. This is an interesting one to me. I, I really like this. Hosea 14, <clears throat> verse 1. I'll stop and give you just a moment to get to Hosea. Of course, if you know where Daniel is, Hosea is the next book. Daniel, Hosea, and Joel. Look at verse 1. He says there, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. <laughs> now, that is a strange expression, is it? The calves of our lips. Now, is it a calf, like a cow, or is it a calf of your leg? You know, what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about a calf that was for sacrifice, for sacrificial purposes. And he's really saying the same thing there. You do these, Lord, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, and then what will we do in response? we will render the sacrifice or the praise of our lips, the sacrifice of our lips to praise thee. And that's what David was saying back here. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. How would you feel if I said, let's everybody lift up our hands right now. And worship the Lord. This is how they would do it. Not this feely good stuff like you see people do it. They would raise their hands up like as a, a, a supplicant to the Lord. And submissive to him. In humble worship. In praise. As an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving. For what God was doing through David. And how he was working in his life. Even in the midst of 
this dire condition. Now notice what also he says. Remember, he's in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land, he says. But in verse 5, he says, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Now, really, the word marrow there is not the marrow of the bone. It's really another word for fat. (laughs) He says, my soul shall be satisfied as with fat and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. And there that praise with his joyful lips comes again. And so he's simply telling us that just like a person who has been satisfied with the choicest of a meal and he comes away from that meal satisfied he says that's how my soul is with you lord i'm satisfied matter of fact the song i'm talking about that was the title that he gave to the song after out of this whole song was satisfied my soul shall be satisfied and so it's, a, it's an amazing encouragement to think of David in this situation in the wilderness. Men were seeking his life, seeking to usurp the throne, and yet he was satisfied with God. And he fully trusted him in this situation. Well, we so, talked about verse 6, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches uh, is when, you know, he does these things. So David spent, apparently, a considerable amount of time while he was, you know, nothing to do, just waiting things out to see what God was going to do back there in the city with his son Absalom and those whose hearts had been, you know, taken up with Absalom and his cause. Verse 7 then, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings... Will I rejoice? So David, David, you know, had a great uh, de- delight or desire uh, to fellowship with the Lord and craved after Him, but he also took a great delight in his. In other words, you know, when you think about it, he said he's focusing on his soul. He was satisfied with what God was doing. He had full, complete trust. And what the Lord was up to. And I think we can fairly say it would all go back to the promise, the covenant that God made with him. And you remember the word covenant means, it's a, it means to cut. God had cut an agreement with David that through him he was going to bring the Messiah. A king who would bring peace and righteousness. To the nation. Consequently, verse 8 My soul followeth hard after thee. Well, it's really the word, it's the word back in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, way back there at the beginning. Verse 24, Genesis 2, 24, talking about you know, God creating Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And he says, concerning them, 
Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Now the word cleave there is the same word that's translated follow hard after back in Psalm 63. So what David is telling us there when he says my soul follows hard after thee, he's following hard in the sense that he's clinging to, cleaving to the Lord is God. And then he reminds him, thy right hand upholdeth me. It was from him, from God, that David got his strength. And then all of a sudden here in verse 9, he turns to his enemies. And it really is an interesting thing as you stop and think, if this really is the time when David was fleeing from Absalom, just keep his own son in mind as you read verses 9, 10, and 11. Because he says, Those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. Those who were seeking David's life in the end would be found in the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. There shall be a portion for foxes or jackals, scavengers. And so the scene is of a battlefield, you know, with bodies lying out in a remote area, rotting in the sun, and the scavengers and jackals, the wild beasts, are coming out to consume those bodies. And they're going to die by the sword. That's, how, that's the manner in which they would die. And, of course, that happened to Absalom. And then he finishes up by saying, but the king, that is David himself, he says, shall rejoice in God. Everyone that swears by him shall glory. That's a great thought. The one who swears by him shall glory. That is, they would take part in the glory of the king when he returned back to Jerusalem, when he gained his throne. And I think the important lesson again for us is to remember that if we profess our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in doing so, you know, when you profess allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, that means, you know, you have received and accepted his gospel which is the gospel of his kingdom, the coming kingdom of the Lord, that those who swear allegiance to the king shall glory, shall participate, shall share in that which is to come. And I'm fully convinced that David understood all those things. And he knew where his hope lay. But he says, the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Well, that's the contrary. They will not participate in that coming glory. And that really is contrary, as we've said on several occasions, to what most of the church teaches today. Most of the church just says, if you're saved, if you receive Jesus as your Savior, 
man, you're done. That's it. I, I even hear people, I hear them say it quite frequently. You know, maybe somebody fell into sin, you know, that had professed Christ. They'd gotten saved, maybe lived for the Lord several years and then departed and died in some tragic death or something. And then they make a comment, well, at least we knew they were saved. That's not a very comforting thought. The mouths of them that are stopped, the ones that depart as Absalom did, and those who set their hearts after Absalom are not going to share in that glory that David's talking about. And there's coming a day, you know, when when the Lord is going to separate those who were his faithful servants from those who were the unfaithful ones. For though, from those who lived for the flesh and for the pleasures of this life and didn't have their mind and their heart focused on that power and that glory that David was speaking of back here in verse 2. And what you end up looking at then when you summarize all of this psalm is you simply say, David was living by what? Faith. He saw those things. And the condition of which he was in and he found himself didn't shake his faith one bit. Not even an iota. And I found that to be a great encouragement to me. That God is going to fulfill his word. That any condition or situation I find myself in, I don't need to let that shake me one bit. But we're to be strong in faith. Or as Paul said in Colossians 3.1, regarding our heart, he says, set your affection on things above. And that's the key. It's one thing to, to say that we have faith. It's another thing to say where our affections truly lie. What I mean by that is it's one thing to know the doctrine. It's one thing to know what the Bible teaches. It's another thing altogether to know that our heart is set on that. Our affections are set on things that are in heaven. And that's where they're to remain. And David, because he had done that, he was like a solid rock out there in the wilderness. His faith wasn't shaken one bit. So I don't know what's maybe come in your life or what has been. I know where I've been, but I don't know what's to come. But I do know that I want to I be like David here. I do, want, I do know that whatever might happen, I want to be able to stand like a rock, to be a testimony, to be counted as one of those who were, was loyal to the king, who was a faithful servant. And I'm very confident and sure you do too. Let's pray. Father, we, we count it a privilege to serve you, to be amongst those who believe your word and take it in its most simple form. That what you said you will do, you will do. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.